Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Shilla, I know you love Shein. <laughs> Shilla does love Shein. I do. Yeah. Um, There's going to be paparazzi shots of me carrying Shein bags. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley, a contributing writer at Vogue Business and Wall Street Journal. This week, closing the trillion-dollar climate gap in fashion, H&M and Lululemon are putting money behind a new decarbonization fund. I'm saying that slowly because it's hard to say. It's got lots of syllables. It aims to raise $250 million. It sounds really big, but is it? Then shoppers are heading back to stores, and brands are adding what they call circular services to try to draw them in. We're going to talk about what circular services are. It turns out that, uh, I'll speak for myself, I wasn't really sure. Um, And we wonder if it's a gimmick or if it can actually help the planet. And then finally, we're going to end with European raids of top design brands headquarters. I literally never thought I would speak that sentence that high-end brands like Dries Van Noten and Gucci, possibly, have been raided by European antitrust regulators. Did a movement to rewire fashion more sustainably somehow turn anti-competitive? Or my actual big question here, why didn't several hundred fashion brands realize they can't be talking about keeping prices high? I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Rachel Kibbe and Shilla Kim Parker. Hey, ladies. Hey, Christina. Hi there. Shilla Kim Parker is CEO and co-founder of Thrilling. It's a marketplace for vintage powered by mom and pop stores. And Rachel Kibbe is the founder of Circular Services Group, an advisory firm that focuses on circularity in fashion, which we're going to be talking about today. But before we get to this, I just have to share something with you guys. We talked about Shein last week. So um, my ears perked up when I saw a story in Sourcing Journal. Um, It was an article on Monday, and it reported on a $100 million lawsuit filed against Shein by a Jacksonville, Florida artist who found a $4 print of her painting for sale on Shein. It's a beautiful painting, actually, of a woman among a bunch of potted plants. And it turns out, I didn't realize that Shein sells art, but like, really, you guys? like, <laughs> No, the, my favorite thing about this story is if you, you've got to Google Maggie Stevenson and Shein just to see these images that we're talking about, yeah. um, the original and then their reproduction. I mean, they, they're really not even trying to hide the fact that they're stealing artwork. I mean, I cheated on essays in middle school better than this. You got to find some synonyms. You have to move some stuff around, like change a color. It's not a reproduction. It's a replica. It's a literally (laughs) a replica. I mean, I was saying, why don't they just... It's not like a print. Yeah, it's an art. It's not a print. It's not a pattern because there's been a lot of like contention and lawsuits around trying to make patterns IP in fashion. This is not a pattern. This is art. And it just seems like... They would have a good extension business just providing a print-on-demand service where (laughs) artists could have their wares printed in China cheaply on demand and sold through Shein, and they just give the artists a portion of the profits. I mean, there's entire businesses around that. Why don't they just do that? They're listening now, and they're th- they're going, oh, oh that's gosh. a great I hope they're listening. <laughs> Why didn't we do that? I just want to ask them what they're thinking. I don't think they are. I think it's just out of control. I think when you have, like, what, how many SKUs mm. a month? Like, how many SKUs a month do they have? Like, 
2,000 different new styles a month thousand. or a week. It was crazy. So, so I think it's just out of control. Yeah. How many people can be like verifying that like a swastika doesn't show up on your website? Um, that, you know, culturally right. insensitive things don't show up your, on your website, much less total appropriation. Yeah. It is part of their business model. I think they, you know, their business model is to beg for forgiveness later, that they get a slap on the wrist, um, you know, and hopefully maybe a judgment like this will actually deter mm-hmm. them going forward. If they can get it, you know, $100 million is a big number. I noticed that they had something like 30 similar lawsuits in California alone. And I know oh, yeah. they had one with Levi's and they settled out of court, so we don't know what it was about. But you, you kind of hope sometimes somebody needs needs to just say, draw the line, I'm not settling out of court. She sounds pissed, $100 million. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Okay. That would make me pay attention. (laughs) Well, let's get to it. Our first topic made me happy, actually, to see it because um, the Apparel Impact Institute last year, or earlier this year, I think it was, they put out a number of how much money we need to spend to reach some um, some climate goals that have been set out by the UN. I think it's, um, we got to cut fashion's carbon emissions in half by 2030, hit net zero by 2050. Um, and they're estimating that it takes a trillion dollars to get there. Uh, then in March, H&M and Lululemon each made a commitment to contribute to a $250 million fund that AII has pledged to start. They each said, H&M and Lululemon said they would put in $10 million. And I don't know about you guys. I like thought, wow, that sounds really big. And then I saw a headline in the LA Times that Drake is selling his LA estate for $22.2 million, which is slightly more than those two companies <laughs> <laughs> um, have pledged. Uh, H&M made $23 billion in revenues uh, in 2021. Lululemon's smaller, but still $4.4 billion. Anyway, um, and let me start with you, Sheila. You have a background in finance. How big of a deal is this $250 million fund? I think there are a couple ways to look at it. So first of all, Apparel Impact Institute, which is, you know, um, leading the fund, um, they put out the, a report that you mentioned, Christina, that it would actually take up $1 trillion, trillion with a T, yeah. to decarbonize and meet net zero ambitions for the fashion industry. Um, that trillion dollars, they say, would go towards um, innovations in leveraging renewable electricity, sustainable materials, phasing out the use of coal. Um, most of that money they um, estimate would come from debt, but they also leave room for venture capital, for brands, for government, even consumers paying a higher price. Um, that all of that would contribute towards um, that one tr- the trillion dollars. So $250 million in context of that trillion dollars, that's 0.025% of their own goalpost. <laughs> now, I don't want to be overly defeatist about it because, you know, I think something is better than nothing. Um, and I think there is power to H&M and Lululemon putting their names on something like mm-hmm. this. I think that is a big deal. You know, and H&M, you know, more than their peer set, I think they they have leaned into this conversation um, in terms of investing in sustainability, all of those things. Now, um, another way to put context to these numbers, and you were, you were talking, you, you mentioned this, Christina, um, there are revenues, Lululemon's, uh, you know, four to six billion, H&M, 20 billion. Um, so it's it's this, this uh, the amount that they've donated is a fraction of 1%. Um, that's always really revealing in terms of, you know, how much of a priority are these companies um, putting towards something, you know, wh- how are they viewing it in terms of a priority? And I think it fundamentally reveals this tension between their business model, which is to pursue growth mm-hmm. at all 
at almost any cost. Right. Um, usually that growth is a result of producing new, producing more new and um, to getting more folks to consume the new. Yep. Um, and then they're investing in, you know, mitigating the impact of that production. Um, and those forces are fundamentally at odds with each other. And barely. I mean, you run a business. Like, if you look at the percentage of H&M's revenues compared to what they're they're donating here, I mean, what what's affordable? I don't know if this is a fair question, but is there like a reasonable percentage of a company's revenues that they should be uh, at least paying in penance for their dirty deeds? That to me is a harder question to answer. I, I think the important question that, you know, we have to grapple with is, um, you know, these businesses are incentivized to pursue growth. Yep. And as long as that is the case, there is always going to be this fundamental, fundamental tension between achieving climate goals and, um, you know, supporting the fundamental business model of the company. Yeah. God. It seems, sometimes I feel it's so hard to tackle. Rachel, you work with a wide array of companies. I'm just curious. It's so complicated. There's so much needed. Why is it so difficult to clean fashion up? And like, where should we be? What areas do we need to be tackling first? Well, I think that I sort of want to address first to backtrack a little bit, sort of the the approach that Apparel Impact Institute is taking. Because Apparel Impact Institute was founded by the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, who we talked about last episode, is behind the Higg oh, Index. The Higg Index. So, yeah. um, along with Target Corporation, and um, as Sheila said, their sort of strategic is tr- approach is to drive sustainability improvements within the context of the industry. So it's not. It's not to me, and this is me speaking, it seems like it's it's instead of systems change, it's how do you continue business as usual, um, but also um, improve specifically impact around climate. And, and it's sort of leaving out the whole social implications around that, but that... That, that's what it is. Lewis Perkins, who is president of the Apparel Impact Institute, has done a lot of incredible work in the industry. He started off at uh, Cradle to Cradle. He's now, um, he was there for many years, which is uh, a body that um, certifies um, standards around sustainability and circularity, which we'll talk more about later in the episode, um, in the industry. And, and now he's president of Apparel Impact Institute. They've done a lot of great work um, his um, Clean by Design program was um, kind of the predecessor to this program, which was a $12 million in philanthropic funding for energy-efficient programs, um, which unlocked about $175 million of additional capital in, um, and they're focusing on um, places where the majority of our clothes are produced, um, 70% or more um, of our clothes are produced um, in Bangladesh, China, Pakistan, India, Italy, and uh, Vietnam. And so... Um, 70%. Yeah, 70%. So, so, so they're very, very focused on like, how do we sort of curb the carbon emissions around the, 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 the most impactful parts of our supply chain now in fashion? And so um, to answer your question, why is fashion so uniquely difficult to clean up? Well, I just named a ton of countries, um, which uh, yeah. points to the sprawling global supply chain of fashion, which employs 75 million people around the globe, from farmers to, pe- 
to, to people working in mining, to manufacturing, to leather tanning, to, I mean, you name it, anything you can think of has to do, any industry almost, you know, um, has to do with fashion because we're making our clothes out of all sorts of different types of materials, which um, spans from agricultural to mining, agriculture to mining, like I said. And it depends on this low-cost, high-volume, endless growth model. Um, and it moves around constantly. The supply chain is always moving, chasing the lowest price to produce our clothes. Um, so how do you how do you track that? How do you change it? It becomes very complicated. But what they do know, what this report um, um, talks about, is 96% of our emissions come from something called scope three emissions. Scope three emissions are... What's that? So scope three, if you'll allow me to... Um, <laughs> <laughs> write this down. Here she comes, she's nerding yeah. out. Write yeah. this I was going to say. <laughs> you will be quizzed. Let her loose, You Rachel. will be quizzed. <laughs> There's a lot of sort of terminology that we live and die by in the fashion industry in terms of measuring environmental impact. Um, and there's two sets of sort of things you should know, scope one, two, and three, and tier tier zero to four, basically. So scope three, scope one and two, basically just think about it like this, your stores. The things that brands own, your stores, your direct environmental impact, uh, owned environmental impacts, like the, the your warehousing, the thing, the the properties you lease, like that. It's it's your home, it's your apartment, it's your house, right? Okay. Um, those okay. are scope mm-hmm. one and two. Scope three is everything outside of your control. So like the impact of your groceries, basically. So it's the impact of the apparel, the 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 farming, the agriculture, the um, factories that you use. It's not the lights you keep on in your house, but the things okay. you purchase. So they they have to purchase goods to have them made, and they have to um, produce goods, obviously. And th- that is not owned by them necessarily, unless you're totally like vertically integrated. It's generally not owned by you. So that's right. a complication there that's very hard to control like how do you control uh how do you control the emissions of um a supply chain that you don't own that you're just buying from you're tapping into and that's what apparel impact hmm. has raised this fund and by the way when they say they've raised this fund it's not complete yet I, i'd estimate there was about 30 million dollars raised from the schmidt family futures foundation which is the foundation of the um ex-ceo of, of google um, Lululemon, Eric Schmidt, H&M. right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that they're probably still raising this fund, right? There's probably like thirty to fifty million dollars already raised, and they're out raising. Um, so I'm interested to hear more about who else sort of tags onto this, and I think that's important. Um, so and also a bunch of it is supposed to be debt, right? So a lot of it's, it's not debt. all going to be raised. There's philanthropy that's going to seed funding for innovation. It's very, it's truly like a very interesting like financial vehicle. Um, there's a lot of you know there's green banks involved. There's it's it's all sorts of or or will be involved. I don't know. They claim it's the first of its kind. It's above my pay grade to understand how that financing came together and and will continue to come together. But they claim that it will unlock over $2 billion in additional capital. I don't know what that means exactly. Shilla, maybe you know what that means. How, what does that mean? Yeah. No, I, I didn't know what that right? meant. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I don't know if it's in revolving loans. Maybe it's in revolving loans because some of this is revolving I, I'm capital. I'm not really sure. I wish they would look at the model. You know, Gates Ventures, Bill Gates, you know, has a ton of money. And um, he got interested in climate change way back and, you know, around the, shortly after Al Gore started talking to us about it. 
And he has started a number of funds, but they're venture capital funds. And he's gone to his buddies who are billionaires um, and is raised, I'm going to go back and look it up now, but I mean, he's raised many billions of dollars. It's not debt. It's raised. They're venture funds. And they're inventing, they're investing in technologies that they hope will um, solve climate change problems. You know, how do you decarbonize concrete? Um, nuclear energy that would be safer and smaller and more local. There's a lot of these things that they're investing in. And they're not doing it. It's not philanthropy at all. Mm. They know that they're going to lose a lot of the money, but they're hoping they hit it big on that one big thing and make that money back and a whole lot more. So they get, you know, John Dorn, who um, is, you know, one of the first really big um, Silicon Valley venture capitalists, you know, he he gets teary-eyed because he feels like he's doing a good thing with this. He's put a lot of his own money into it. But, um, you know, the bottom line is he also hopes that his, his legacy is going to make his family much richer. Um, anyway, I feel like this $250 million fund is... I mean, it's certainly, it's nice to see it's real money, but I feel like they're still looking at it as philanthropy instead of how how can you actually get rich I investing think, in this stuff? I think you're not right. wrong, but I think I have a little bit of a different perspective as I watch for many years folks involved in this personally go out and be raising capital. Like, I'm not saying that maybe mm-hmm. the organizations who are contributing aren't still looking at it a little bit as philanthropy. Um, but the, the people who are raising this money have been doing so for a really long time. And I think it's significant because I think this is mm-hmm. the largest fund I've seen of its time, to- of its kind. And there is a lot of really? FOMO and when there's some money more follows. And I think that this is risky money. This is labor and infrastructure, the things that our VC friends hate to invest in the most. They don't want infrastructure. <laughs> they don't yeah. want to pay for labor and parts of the world that, um, are undeveloped in a lot of times, less developed than the West. And there are, uh, there's just a whole, I mean, and especially with like, so that, that scope three emissions I was talking about that everybody loves, um, uh, the the 50% of those scope three emissions are in something called tier three, which is material production. So 50% of the emissions, like almost 50... They really like the number three, fabric. (laughs) Making fabric. Making making fabric. So I'm going to try to say it in English. Um, Making fabric is the most impactful (laughs) part of the tier three, uh, of scope three, rather. So anyways, what I'm trying to say is it's, it's generated generally, that particular part of the supply chain is fueled by coal. Therm, uh, it's fueled by coal. And so this isn't about putting solar panels on top of buildings. It's about... Um, uh, governments, infrastructure, policy of those areas where this, where the production is happening and changing all of that is a big lift. Um, so this isn't just investing in a SaaS product. You know what I mean? This is like true right. systems changed within governments sometimes. So governments would need to get rid of the coal plants, you're yes. saying? Yes. And move toward clean energy. That's a policy issue. Or even electricity, Yeah. yeah. I think there's something else going on with the funding, too, because, I mean, you know, just take healthcare as an example. Mm-hmm. 
you know, women make up half the population, we're half the workforce, we're more likely to be caregivers than men. Um, women make 80% of healthcare decisions. And study after study finds that um, diseases that disproportionately affect women, underfunded. Diseases that disproportionately affect men, overfunded. And I think you see something similar in, in, in this environment as well in terms of venture capital funding. Um, you know, women drive 70 to 80% of consumer decisions. Um, in yeah. climate tech, VCs invested $40 billion in 2021 across 600 deals. Single-digit percentage um, went into consumer and, and within that apparel. Um, wow. And honestly, I, I do think, you know, and why? It's trillions of dollars of, in, of industry. It's yeah. a substantial contributor to carbon and waste. And I do feel like there is a strong correlation in funding when something is viewed as a women's industry versus when it's not. I 100% agree with you. It's you know you see this in every aspect of attitudes toward fashion, as though also as as though men don't wear clothes, but um, just it's a woman's industry. I just I guess I would say one thing. I I don't know if this is important for the episode, but I was just thinking a lot as as Sheila was talking about how how <laughs> abhorrently skewed um, uh, venture venture funding is towards other it, other climate tech industries that aren't fashion. Um, and there's a lot of education I've had to do when I've been in VC rooms and I've spent a little bit of time venture capital fundraising around educating how um, fashion is climate tech. There is a misunderstanding that fashion is not like sustainability, circularity, all the things that we need to close this trillion dollar gap is not climate tech. And it indeed is. I feel like there's a disproportionate amount of time uh, and a lot of us are women um, educating, um, which is, you know, hopefully we can do that on this podcast. Yep. Yep. Just, just another hat we have so to we wear. Don't have to say it again. <laughs> just, <laughs> so, right. Exactly. <laughs> Plastered Just forward them a link to the podcast. Yeah, fashion minutes climate tech. Listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, here. This is um, this is a mixed bag story. This um, it's you know, there's good news out there. Physical retail is back. People are going to stores. I know the pandemic isn't over, but we're venturing out again. Uh, and. That raises a bunch of questions. Um, we've both we've all noticed that there are a lot of stores that are adding circularity services like repairs for clothing come in to you know where you, where you bought your clothes and we'll repair it for you. Nordstrom started pioneering this actually a couple of years ago, um, and they're in vogue business. Bella Webb has written about Selfridges and Harrods and Arcturix creating these sort of re immersive retail experiences that, um, that offer services and uh, sort of enticements for consumers to come back into stores. And uh, particularly repairs. I mean, that sounds both really convenient to me. And, um, but I also wonder, is this, is this a gimmick or is this really something that can, um, that can make a change? And uh, Rachel, can you like dive into this for a second for us? Sum, us? sum up what you are seeing out there in physical retail and we'll want to get a sense of your view on these efforts at circularity. Or maybe we ought to talk about what circularity is first. Right. Let's talk about what circularity is because I think we assume people know what it is and I don't think, I think a lot of people don't, even though you do, you do know what it is. I but, don't. I don't think I do. But I, <laughs> And now it's to the point where it's embarrassing it to ask. Yeah, and don't yeah. be embarrassed. I, I think that we're throwing it around with a lot of um, 
assumptions. Um, so basically, circularity is sort of a way to describe uh, both the production of our products in, in any type of product, not just in fashion, um, and and its uh, life cycle. Um, without it ever, it's an ideal situation in which everything you produce returns over and over to a new product. And so we like to think of it as a circle, but it's really sort of not that perfect. But in your mind, you can think of it as a circle. So you produce something and hopefully as sustainably as possible. And then um, someone buys it and then perhaps, or they rent it. um, uh, And then it goes... um, to uh, potentially needing a repair or potentially being resold. Um, and then potentially alongside uh, along that life cycle, eventually it would need to potentially be recycled. So you'd be able to turn those materials back into new materials and then you have a new product again. So it's this ideal situation where ne- nothing ever goes into landfill or incineration. And there's a lot of different ways that can happen. And so stores now are sort of offering different solutions to keep products in circulation, which include rental, resale, repair, um, even recycling. And it's kind of this exciting time because a lot of that, and they're calling them circular services, have been around behind the scenes. You, a lot of our listeners, probably have rented something. You're using a circular service. Maybe you've taken your shoes to a cobbler. You've used a circular service. You've given your clothes to goodwill. You are using a circular service. It's all about sort of what do you do to keep your clothes and your things out of landfill, right? What is that next Keep, you're 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 basically abating it as long as possible at, at this point because most things are going to end up in landfill and incineration um, in our current infrastructure. But how do you how do you extend that life? And so stores are now seeing this as an opportunity. We've seen you know during the pandemic we've all had a wild ride. Um, everybody was shopping online and people weren't going to stores and stores were closing and we thought and people are never going to go to stores again. Well, guess what? In, in fashion, we love to say it's over or this is really hot, this is over. We we have a history of declaring <laughs> things way too soon. And the truth yeah, is... Or too late. Yeah. yeah, or too late. Is this cancel, is this cancel like, culture? Fashion shows are over. It's such cancel culture. We are so... We love to be so right, but we rarely are. And we just like... It's it's actually kind of funny. And then... But people are people. We It's nicer weather. We want to see people again. We want to socialize. People are going back to stores now. And stores are sort of ready, uh, but in a new world. They're like self Selfridges is offering rental, refills, resale, repair. Like it's drawing, it's foot traffic too, knowing that people are shopper, shopping more considerately, that people are concerned about the environment, that drawing people into stores is important to keep the lights on. Um, and um, there's all these, you know, it's not even just about the circular services. It's about like providing education and engagements, like loyalty programs, and and sort sort of like rethinking what it means to go to a physical store. Adidas is, has installed a giant 3D printing machine in collaboration with Parley for the Oceans to recycle ocean ocean plastic into homeware, clothing, and sunglasses in a store. Um, there was a story in Vogue about this store called Kiddix, I believe, which is, has, a, has put up a whole sort of like 
they're addressing waste by allowing um, people to drop off their used clothing um, and partnering with used clothing um, service providers and then washing the clothing in the store, re- uh, disassembling it in the store, remanufacturing it in the store, doing photo shoots in the store, putting it online in the store. And so it's this whole sort of, you can watch how the sausage is made in circularity. And um, art, art <laughs> is tricks- this a gimmick? Listen, you know, it totally is, but like, how bad is the gimmick? Does it work? It's like the Krispy Kreme watching the donuts get glazed. Listen, even they say it's not going to address, it's not going to address the scale of the issue. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Well, you know, one thing I even wonder about is, okay, so if a department store is now um, offering services where I can come in, I get a, I can get a repair done, or I can rent something. Like, is it better for me to go to the department store to rent an outfit, or is it better for me to go and rent the runway and have it shipped to my house? I mean, I think it depends on what would you more likely do. You know what I mean? I think that they're trying to meet the customer where they are. Um, I yeah. think that the thing about I, rentals, rentals tough, but I do know that the thing about going in store and trying something on is it really, really helps with return rates. Return rates are, uh, yeah. in fashion, the highest of any product category, pretty much. Like, a third of clothing gets returned, and a lot of times it doesn't make it back onto the shelf. But I think that's only, like, 1%. If it's digital, store. you mean? If it's bought yeah. online. Yeah, if it's bought online. Yeah. So, a third of it, if you buy online, 1% if you buy it in the store. Yeah. I believe that's that's accurate. That's massively important for stores. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Rachel. I don't. I think it's it was it's a little. Um, I do feel like there tends to be you know overly dramatic headlines, and um, about you know something is dead or something is coming back. But um, I do, I feel like in store shopping actually never really went away. And honestly, <laughs> I mm. was so shocked to find this, but WebMD actually has an article on retail therapy that that's like actually a thing. <laughs> And that, you know, it's, it's so funny. You can look it up. And, oh and they say, God. you know, it helps you feel in control when things around in your life feel out of control. It helps you feel in control, that it can be a distraction when you're super depressed, um, that there's actually a dopamine hit you get when you find something you fall in love with. And even though most people shop alone, because you're in an environment with a lot of other people, you feel like you're a connection to society and that actually helps. Um, That's why. So wow. apparently, apparently, apparently retail therapy is a real thing. And, and Wall Street Journal had this great quote from this research analyst, Mark Schmulik, who said, we've got over 100 years as a society of going into a store to buy something. That muscle memory doesn't just switch off because you're forced to buy things online a couple of times during pandemic. Um, you know, so I think, you know, e-commerce is still only around a fifth of total global retail sales. We are wired to love shopping in person. Yeah. Um, and, but, and, and it's true. It is, there, there are different kinds of trade-offs, trade-offs between shopping in person and shopping online. Now, shopping in store, um, you know, Rachel noted there's a, there's a lower rate of returns when you shop in store. Um, so lower chance of you're shipping a, a package back and forth um, from tr- in, in trucks. Um, so lower delivery emissions. You're less likely to have single-use plastic when you shop in store. Oh, wow. Um, benefits of shopping online, though, you know, that you avoid all the infrastructure of setting up a store. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy and heating and cooling of the building and lighting and materials. Um, you're honestly more likely to over-consume in person, much more likely to impulse buy and buy things that you don't need. On- online, you're more likely to find things exactly what you want. You know, that's me. Um, I, I got into Insta. Well, I was exactly about to say 
say that, you know, over pandemic, I started shopping using groceries uh, via Instacart. And I, you know, it's a much fewer bags that come into my house versus when I go in person and I'm loading up the shopping cart with all this stuff I I, I don't really need. Um and then there's a kind of like a more efficient matching that happens online. So you're you're looking for a really specific thing, and that specific thing might be in the next town over. Um, so you know that can be helpful too in terms of getting products um, into the right people's homes. So um, trade offs as always. I think the important part too here though is it's funny. A friend of mine sent me a text message the other day, which set, which was of Arcteryx's store at, uh, in Los Angeles on La Brea. Um, they're window says circular by design. He said, what is this? And he said, there's all this stuff going on in the store. I'm not sure what's happening there. Um, I, I did some research. I know that they're using a quarter of their store for repair and upcycling in New York. I don't know if they're doing the same um, wow. in in Los Angeles, but he sent me that message and I have. it makes people think. So even he didn't even go in and there's this education happening just by having these Stores right. saying we're participating in the right. circular economy. Um, it's a really, I, I don't think it's all for show. I think education, consumer education is really important. Consumer, It's a system change that consumers aren't going to change alone, but they can't push for it if they don't know how important it, it is to not overconsume, to take care of the things you own, to repair the things you own and know where you can do that. And for stores to provide that, and, and ascend, it's a- actually EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility. Every brand should be either partnering with someone to repair their goods, right? Or repairing yeah. them themselves. I think it, yeah. it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense for a brand like Arcteryx, too, when you think about that, I mean, A, they're super expensive, oh. but they're really mm. well-made. Right. I mean, they, they are made it's to low last hanging for fruit. generations. So offering, right? And plus, yeah. to tell people, okay, so you invested $500, $600 in a raincoat. Um, it's not just you can take a shower in it and stay dry, but also we'll repair it for you. Like, you will, you know, this we're proving right. that it has longevity because we're there to care for it for you. I like that. I that actually looked up L.L. Bean because I know I love my bean boots. And I heard in two, yeah. a, a number of years ago, 2018, people were, had, were all up in arms because they stopped their lifetime uh, return policy. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if they would do that today. But I do. I, I I wondered if they still had a repair program, and they do, and they're still repairing twelve thousand boots a month. Um, so you can send uh, back really? your yeah, or a wow. year rather, twelve thousand a year. Uh, so you can still send back your bean boots and get them resold. And cleaned. I've never heard them called bean boots. You don't call what do you? Oh call yeah, them? <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know. Is that is that bean what they're boots. called? Yeah, they yeah really they're the best. Bean they're boots. Oh. They last forever. <laughs> I did not know. They totally, I'm like thinking, <laughs> when could you, like, I guess maybe if you lived in Massachusetts and um, and wore them all winter long, they could need a repair. I wear mine I, all winter long. I've had a pair for like 10 years. And and have you ever needed a repair? I, I'm thinking about forever. it. They last forever, but what the, the soles get a little uh, more, you know, the rubber wears down and that's what you want. That's what okay. they replace. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I love that they're manufactured. So they're just actually designed and manufactured in a way that they can replace a sole. Yep. Which is great. Yeah. I love that. All right. Let's dig in on the next thing. This is, a, a, I'll call it a sore topic with me because I've been watching it since this all began two years ago. According to the European Commission, a number of luxury brands were raided by authorities earlier this month. So a little bit of background here. 
we start with a few weeks ago, European European Commission um, authorities raided a bunch of headquarters for some high-end fashion brands. They haven't said which ones they raided, but they, the European Commission actually announced that they had done had done this. Um, which was then followed up by a whole lot of law firms putting out um, notices to their clients <clears throat> on their blogs and websites saying, watch out if you've done this, come talk to us fast. But these raids go back to a moment about two years ago, at, shortly after the pandemic had hit. Dries Van Noten took the lead in this personally, the man, not, not just the brand. Um, tor- he was joined by Tory Burch and a bunch of other really well-known fashion brands and saying, we're hurting... This is a moment where we have to take a step back and look at what we're doing. We're producing too much. We're producing too often. Um, The show schedule doesn't make any sense. We have to rethink our entire fashion system. And they put out a letter, and they signed it. Um, You can now, the letter is out there on the, we should put it in the show notes. You can actually go on a website, and the letter is there. And hundreds of fashion brands in the following months signed, signed on to this letter, and they started having Zoom meetings talking about how they could do this. And it sounded so great. I mean, even I was like, yay, they're finally, it's a pandemic, something good comes of it, right? Now we won't have the insanity of the these sort of overproduction. But the thing is, is that they started, as part of this conversation, they came around to something that designers really care a lot about, which is sell-through, how much you sell at full price. And they the the <laughs> the conversation sort of devolved into how can we stop going into discounts so early? How can we deliver products into stores so that they sell at first full price for longer? And um, and apparently, antitrust authorities in Europe <laughs> thought, gee, that's a really bad idea. They said, come again. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> you have a come again, and you're, <laughs> right, exactly. and your Zoom calls are recorded. Yes, exactly. Yes. We'll just take screenshots of those things. <laughs> Exactly. Man, Sheila, I'm glad Which we is, did have you sign that antitrust agreement. I, <laughs> I was just thinking Please. that. I, um, you know, I was just thinking that. I was like, this is a great idea. Let's set up a text chain. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh my God. God so, see, that's uh, the thing. You can see how it could happen so easily. I mean, so, so easily. easily. Yeah. So easily. It starts off so innocuous, and all of a sudden, you're running a crime ring. <laughs> yeah. Cartel, they call them a cartel, don't they? I am. Yes. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's I'm like, it's, it, I, it's five crime families. Are we going to talk about the RICO Act? Like, yeah. all of a sudden, it's just I just, becoming I just want to know who here. did this. Who did this? Like, who logged the complaint? Was it like, <laughs> you want me I to? Do. I just want to know who. There's someone who really wow. had a bone to pick. I mean, I'm not, okay, I listen, don't know. Price fixing, I don't think they had cool. to. Not cool. Oh, you think it came, the call came from inside the I house? Think the call, you're no. saying, put I think it, it came on from the outside. Web. I think it came from outside the house. Someone who was very oh, intimidated okay. that they were they were basically sort of unionizing in a way, you know. Like oh, I think I think this is this interesting. This was from very outside the house. I think. I see. I okay. don't even know okay. if there was a complaint. I mean, you don't it was think so? so? Open. The, the, the <laughs> Vogue was writing about it. I mean, were it, it, when New you York read Times it, wrote about it. Everybody you go wrote, back and read like it. Literally published in publications in the news. I, so right. regulators would just had it handed to them. I mean, That's I, embarrassing. This is embar- that's an embarrassing, embarrassing way to get caught for a crime. <laughs> I guess the whole fashion well, yeah, industry I mean, learned something. 
You know, something similar actually happened um, after the 2008 financial crisis. Um, you know, there was suddenly like, you know, nobody was shopping. It was embarrassing. You know, people were buying Hermes, billionaires were buying Hermes, but didn't want the Hermes shopping bags because it was like uncool right. to be rich at that moment. And, um, and, but brands that first fall, brands were, were um, stuck with a ton of inventory that they couldn't sell. And the department stores just slashed prices. It was, I, re- I remember it. It was like hmm. weeks and weeks and weeks before the normal sales times. Saks Fifth Avenue was like, 80% off, please come. And it was a hard hmm. time for brands. And they started um, having conversations with each other about how they could stop, you know, stop retail stores from going into those things. Over the, like in 2009, right. 2010, there were a lot of conversations. And I thought, I mean, you know, I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time, you know, sitting near antitrust reporters and thinking, does, <laughs> does anybody think this is a problem? Like, really? Right. Should, like, Gucci like and Saint Laurent be like, <laughs> your antitrust colleagues. Well, it's, it's funny you bring that up. Because there was this, there was this story, um, I think in 2020, um, called Sweatpants Forever, um, oh, in the New York yeah. Times by Irina Alexander. Times. And that's exactly yeah. what she describes. And she says, actually, that was the beginning of the end. I mean, because what mm. happened was it created this vicious cycle. Those discounts during the crisis created this cycle from which we've never recovered because customers got more and more used to having discounts all the time, which which created a system. There's something called RTV, um, Return to Vendor, where... Um, like Barney's, for instance. Ding! Lingo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, return to I, vendor. I, returning? Ret- well, at oh, Barney's, the- for instance, what they do, because there was so... They, I mean, there's... It's it's a, that article. Did. I mean, if you have the stomach for it, read it. Um, but I'll just try to sum it up really quickly. Um, after the financial crisis, everything was discounted, discounted, discounted. And to capture market share, what retailers like Barney started doing was buying up more than they could sell. So they could capture market share and mm-hmm. then return to vendor, which means the brands would have to pay for what they didn't sell. They would still, mm-hmm. you know, they would have to, and so they would have it on their books. Yeah. And then that 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 also coincided with Instagram. And she says in the story that editors destroyed their own jobs through Instagram because at the same time, what wow. editors were doing was taking pictures on, the runway used to be where private, basically, where only select yeah. people were invited. And that's when you would make your purchases. When, when when everybody could see what was on the runway, everybody wanted it. So there was more and more demand. So there was this discounting, more demand, fast fashion was pumping up. And so you have brands like um, the ones who have signed this letter who cannot sustain themselves anymore in the wholesale environment. And then yeah. you have a response direct to consumer, which we can get into online selling, which worked for a while, but it's dependent on venture capital, um, which expects uh, exponential growth, which has become more and more unsustainable as Facebook ads and Instagram ads get more and more expensive. So why I was saying maybe it comes from the outside is that these brands can no longer work inside this model. They can't work as direct-to-consumer brands because like digital advertising is too expensive and they can't work in the wholesale model only because that doesn't work either anymore. And so they're thinking that letter was like, what do we do? We need to slow it down. We need to- It was. And they don't look at themselves as the as the the deciders in that equation, they're looking at the retail stores as being the deciders of when 
when discounting starts and when you sell it. They, mm-hmm. So these brands, I mean, the, some of the big brands who have their own stores, it's harder to make that argument. But brands that are primarily wholesale, they really don't determine disc- when discounts start. I guess my question is, how much of this, I mean, this was all framed under sustainability. And some of these measures just feel like, how do you run a business more efficiently? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so how much of this, uh, you know, how much of these measures is really about sustainability and how much of it is actually just driving a more profitable, more efficient business? I mean, you can only be like, true sustainability is making less, right? And how can you do that when it's always a race to the bottom, how, uh, discounting and making more and and that's right where we are. It's it's Paris Fashion Week for men's right now. They just they had um, they in they just had Florence, and apparently attendance at the Florence shows was up something like four hundred more than four hundred percent. Forty percent of the attendees were from outside of Italy. So I mean, you know, the the, the collections are back. They're big. Dries Van Noten himself in that letter was saying he said that he was um, contemplating going to only two collections a year. Well, he just showed men's, you know, he's, he's back to, mm. to his, you know, a new collection every couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's not that long ago that we were thinking that we'd sort of, the pandemic had spurred us to make changes. And I feel like it's, it's faster and bigger than ever. The collections that I was seeing on, on, on runways, particularly at New York Fashion Week in February were massive. These like relatively mm. small brands showing like 120 looks in a fashion show. It, wow. that, it should be 60. You know, it's twice as so big. So after as all that, nothing yeah. has changed. Well, nothing. And in fact, maybe has gotten Why worse. Why do you think maybe that is? It might have. <laughs> Why do you oh, think that man. is? Why do you guys <laughs> think that is? I, I I observe it all, but I'm not working in the industry. I I can see. I I think that you, it, maybe it's just competition. I have a cynical view of of all of that, especially, you know, with George Floyd and, you know, promises that are made by brands yeah. and, you know, and I think, um, you know, especially in the black community, it's hard not to say, yeah, let's see, let's see who's really sticking to their word after all the spot, the spotlight has kind of veered in a different direction. Right. Um, and so, right. you know, I think, I think, you know, you, you do need a, a continual spotlight to mm-hmm. kind of force change to happen. Otherwise, companies will always revert back to the mean. I guess I say why, because it's like it doesn't seem like it's working. (laughs) You know what I mean? I I literally mean why. Like, if you could show 40 great pieces instead of 120, that is so much less overhead for you. I think you'll get more attention. I think that it just seems like such, you know, I, I just couldn't stomach working directly in the fashion industry ever because I'd done enough, uh, like basically full-time in unpaid <laughs> internships during my time at Parsons that I just saw a lot of <laughs> wheels spinning, like a lot of unnecessary work, a lot of unfocused, um, making things to make things and throwing a lot of spaghetti at a wall and hoping it stuck and people driving themselves into a, mm-hmm. to the ground to the point where people were committing suicide, Alexander, you know, McQueen, like it Oof. was just, and it's like, all, it seems so much for not, it seems for this excess is just uh it's 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 this manic sort of manic yeah. behavior that the industry can't seem to quit and i don't i don't understand why i think people within the industry don't understand why i actually had a conversation with a designer of pretty big um sort of contemporary priced brand uh recently and she was like asking the same question like she's under, but she's she's the creative director, so she's literally 
got her bosses saying, we need more of these black t-shirts and we need more of this and we need more of that. Right. And she's got to produce it. And she's like, but, but, but I thought we were slowing down. Yeah. Stuck <laughs> on the hamster wheel. That? She doesn't they even can't know. get off. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're going to work toward some solutions. I think we actually, <laughs> we punched some buttons of our own today, but do you guys have, <laughs> to throw it out there, I always like, what's pu- punching your button these days, Rachel? I live in New York, and so I have uh, my bodega, which is, uh, as everybody knows, in New York City, uh, also known as your kitchen. I have my corner bodega. And they always, they see me like every day. These guys know me. And they try to give me a bag and a and a straw every time I'm in there. And I always I always decline. And sometimes I almost feel like taking it because I just don't have the energy because they are like, why not? You don't want a straw? Yeah. You, don't wanna, you know? <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. I thought straw. straws were supposed to be illegal soon. They they, they missed the whole <laughs> conversation about they, the straws. I, but I've I had just, it I really them. <laughs> Leave it. Leave oh, it. Yeah. Yes. Me. Oh, you brought it to them. Yeah. You brought the conversation like, to them. Yeah. <laughs> um, Shell, I didn't ask you about, you got a button um, that's been pressed this week? Well, um, I'm going to say two things. One is I'm really glad we're not talking about Marilyn Monroe and Kim Kardashian in that dress anymore. <gasps> yes. I feel like that's died down. God. I couldn't take any more conversation Moving about on. it. With yeah. you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I, just, I just can't talk about it anymore. Um, or any anybody else's hot takes on it. And then um, the second thing is today, you know, we're, we're recording this Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. The most important news <laughs> is that Beyonce dropped her single <laughs> last night. I just saw that. <laughs> called, called Break My Soul. Yeah. And um, and what's so funny to me about it is that beyond being you know a great song um, and uh, um, something a super fun hit for the summer is that it's like a Rorschach test of what people want to want to interpret out of the song. So people are you know people are like she's telling me to quit my job. I hear it, Beyonce. I hear you. You're telling me to break up with my boyfriend, unionize, quit my job. You know and so. <laughs> She's the new champion that's an of, artist. The, of the great resignation. What's pushing your buttons, Christina? Actually, speaking of, we've had COVID in our house for the past two weeks. And my, my son graduated from college and got COVID graduation weekend at the parties. Um, and then promptly came home. And we were all like, oh, we've no. literally not had COVID this whole time. The whole family. Wow. Two kids at college. It still didn't get it. it couldn't, none of us. So then we're all like, wow, we're back in, we're stuck in 2020, right? Like, Mm. can't go out of the house, can't see anybody, not sure if we should go to the grocery store, but it's 2022. And so the rules are different. So Mm -hmm. nobody really agrees on what the rules were. Anyway, he's test, he's test, he's fine now. He's, and he's tested, um, negative so we can go back to real life. But I just really, I had this like deja vu thing for the last two weeks while we were all stuck here. So COVID is your hot button of the week. It was. It was I thought it was gone <laughs> and then it came uninvited. <laughs> Listen, that's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter, sending a link to friends and colleagues and going to Apple or Spotify and giving us a rating. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com. We want your story ideas or your rants. We'll hear your rants. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shola Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Ann Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are executive producers. They're the big dogs. 
Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Whatever that is, we can do a podcast on what advanced materials are. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. I like to get takeout. You know, there's some days I just don't want to cook, and there's restaurants that do things much better than I do. Um, oh, my God, the takeout container. I've got to stop eating takeout. Yeah, the forks not, wrapped in like, plastic, the <gasps> plastic forks wrapped yes. in plastic yes. that you're not going to mm. use because it's takeout because you have forks that are better. Yes, mm. exactly. Exactly. Oh, Or when they <laughs> assume that it's like five people ordering, <laughs> it's just you. Yeah. <laughs> And they give you five. Like, the amount she five, ordered, five different it must forks. be five people. So it's 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 a judgment, and it's wasteful to the environment. <laughs> oh my God.